Good evening, Crime Talk aficionados. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. It is Tuesday night, so this is our Tuesday night live show, affectionately referred to as After Dark. And as promised, just like I mentioned in our video, if you happen to watch it today, because we always like to under-promise and overproduce. that's right. We have Lori Hellis here. So let's go ahead and bring her into the conversation. Good evening, Lori. How are you? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I am doing better than I deserve. I assure you of that. <laughs> so um, why don't, I know a lot of people that are joining us know who you are. We've talked about you. I think I referred to you as my hero. <laughs> but why don't you give me kind of a quick quick bio for everyone out there so they know who you are uh, and what you do and why you bring some credibility to the whole situation with trying to uh, get access to uh, the court files in the Lori Vallow, Chad DeBell matter. Take it away. Sure. Well, uh, I practiced law for 27 years. I'm a retired criminal attorney, um, did both prosecution and defense, definitely preferred defense. Uh, and um, so I retired to write and decided that I was going to write a book about the Vallo and Daybell case. Um, so I'm under contract to write a book and uh, just waiting for the trial to happen so I can finish that. In the meantime, I started a newsletter because I felt like there were a lot of people who had a lot of questions about the legal parts of things. Um, so the newsletter sort of focuses on that, although my book won't focus just on the legal. And um, so uh, I used to appear pretty frequently with a, uh, on a friend's uh, YouTube channel covering true crime. And um, now I've started my own channel. So last right. Friday was my first live and uh, I'll be doing those every Friday. Great, more competition. <laughs> no, I think it's great. So why don't you give us a, a plug as to your new channel? Um, what do they have to search to find it? The name of the channel is the name of my book, Children of Darkness and Light, which refers to the dark light scale that Chad DeVallu used to decide that uh, Tylee and JJ were dark spirits. So Children of Darkness and Light, and okay. uh, it's on Fridays at 6 Mountain Time. Okay, well, perfect. And yeah, so everyone should go there, and I will ask Frank to put a link in the bio down below or whatever we call it. Um, Thanks. It's already there. Apparently Frank's Thank already you. put it there. So everyone should go do that. I urge everybody to go do that. And yeah. not that I have any bias towards lawyers, <laughs> but I think that it's good to have somebody that really knows the legal jargon, uh, so to speak, explain it just because not that people can't learn it and don't know it, but until you've done it like 150 times, you don't really know what to expect, in my my humble opinion. So uh, I, think I think that's right. It's kind of like a different language. Yeah, and and you're a great source of information, so I appreciate it. So hopefully, everyone that's watching tonight and then everyone watches the video will go check it out. All right, let's get to the brass tacks of what is going on there in Idaho. All right, so we know that a lot of court filings. Um, have been suppressed, and I mean suppressed in the way that they're not available to the public. 
We also know that apparently they have more in-chamber conferences in this particular case than I have probably ever done in my entire life. Um, I mean, other than maybe going back in chambers sometimes to do jury instructions, and that was in an old courthouse where it was just easier, uh, but there was always a court reporter there. I've never seen a case where there's been so many items that have been sealed and everything's done behind closed doors, all under the guise of it could prevent a fair trial. Please, since you're there, let's start there. What the heck is going on there? And how do they do this? How do they get around being open to the public, a fair and public trial? You know, that whole Sixth Amendment stuff, right to a public right. trial? Well, let me start by saying Rexburg, um, Madison, and Fremont County are side by side. <clears throat> Rexburg is a very small community. Um, and uh, St. Anthony, where the Fremont County Courthouse is, would, would qualify as tiny. So it's, um, it's a very insular kind of community. Culturally, they are about 96% members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So they're all Mormon. And um, so that has its own cultural vibe to it as well. So then you layer on top of that the fact that the judge in the case was only appointed, <clears throat> excuse me, to the district court. He had been a municipal court judge. He was only appointed to the district court in late 2019, and then COVID hit and shut everything down. Mm -hmm. So his experience on the bench is pretty limited with complex cases. And um, this, of course, is his first death penalty case. It also is the first de death penalty case for both district attorneys, yeah. as well as uh, Chad's attorney, John Pryor. So there's a lot of inexperience going on. So I think that contributed to the judge's decisions. And then I think um, I think there's a bit of small town good old boyism going on. So my understanding, and, and this has been, was information that was given to me and then confirmed by some folks close to the, the case. My understanding is that early in the case, the prosecutors, the judge, some of the law enforcement people, we're all part of a county employee Facebook group. And um, at some point they made some comments about the case. And we all know that that in and of itself probably wouldn't have been fatal had they just stepped back, said, this was not the proper way to do things, our mistake, we now have policies in place, that's all been scrubbed and we're you know, we've counseled all of our folks that that's not acceptable behavior. I think that probably would have been enough to deal with the issue. Let me ask you a question. Let me interrupt you. Sure. Do you know the name of this Facebook group? I don't. I mean, okay. okay. Yeah, I, I, I don't right off the top of my head. Okay. So, so 
the person who discovered it called it to the attention of both the prosecution and the defense. And when the defense got a hold of it, um, you might remember that that Lori's first attorney, Mark Means, was jumping up and down and filing all kinds of odd motions. And it appears that he he was right that there was something untoward going on, but he was not experienced enough to be able to deal with it in the proper way. Mm-hmm. So, but my understanding is that there have been filings questioning the um, level of bias in with the prosecution and with the grand jury as well. And all of those motions have been sealed. Yeah. So let me ask you. So, I mean, we got so much to talk about. I'm going to try to, I mean, seriously, there's so much. So Mark Means, the original attorney for Lori Vallow, you know, he was crazy, right? I mean, not crazy, but it seemed like his inexperience was getting the best of him. And he didn't know exactly which way to go with it, probably just from inexperience of not doing criminal work, but he thought something was wrong. And one of the motions I recall uh, you know, they got the bar involved to, you know, sanction them. They did an investigation. They said not, no harm, no foul, nothing there. And frankly, I agree with it based upon what I knew. But if, you know, the prosecution people or people that work there, like you said, I mean, they can have their opinions. I mean, we've all seen it where somebody from a police department says something inappropriate and they get fired. You know, like you said, what is so terrible about that? I mean, it's not going to like affect Robert Wood's election or anything like that, is it? In in, in Rexburg, uh, I would doubt it. I, but I'd probably get a few votes out of it. Right. <laughs> you can get already ninety nine percent. But, um, but I think the more troubling thing is the lengths to which they've gone to cover it up. And why? Why would they do that? Because it's a small town, and they all protect one another. Yeah. So. Obviously, uh, John Pryor filed motions regarding these issues, the grand jury issues, et cetera. Right. He asked for permission to appeal, right. i.e. an interlocutory appeal, on a couple of issues. And I think Judge Boyce granted him uh, the right to do that on a couple of, of motions that were kind of sealed, I guess. I can't find anything. Is there? I mean, the Court of Appeals can't be sealed as well either can it i don't think he's filed them yet okay i don't think he's filed them with the court of appeals yet so i think that may be why they're they can't be found yet okay. um i mean but i mean i'm no you know like i said i try not to do appellate work we have, I have a guy in my office that does it he's great at it but there's timelines and it seems like is it just me or there are no real solid timelines on anything in this case. No, and actually that was discussed at the last hearing that um, both sides asked the judge to set some clear uh, timelines and some clear deadlines for motions. So- I mean, you practice law for 27 years. You know, when you you got to arraignment, (laughs) the judge said, how much time do you need for, for motion? Well, give me 30 days, your honor. And you met that guideline. And if you don't meet it, you have to ask for leave or permission to file outside of that. And you better have some good reason for that. But I've never seen anything so piecemeal in my life. 
Yeah, it's been pretty disorganized. So um, both sides actually pointed out to the judge that they would like to have motion deadlines. So we'll see yeah, whether he sets them or not. Well, speaking of motions deadlines, you filed a couple of motions um, with the court. And um, we've talked about it here where you filed a motion. And I think it's interesting that, you know, you are an interested party, uh, even though even though you try to intervene, <laughs> no such thing exists in the criminal code, unless, of course, you're the official press from one of the newspapers, right. then right. you can be an intervener when it's convenient. <clears throat> but if you're Lori Hellas, who's trying to get access and saying, Judge, you didn't do it right, yeah. um, you, you have no standing. And he nitpicked everything he could to delay your filings. That's right. But ultimately, what did you file and what took place at the hearing on October 13th, I think? So ultimately, um, I filed motions uh, as a third party, as a non-party movement, I think is what they made me call myself. And... Um, <laughs> Lori Hellis, the non-movement party. Non-party movement, yes. So um, I filed those, and it was interesting that um, they set the hearing out at least a month, which I thought was kind of interesting because they've always been pretty quick to set hearings on these on the motions. But something, something important that can affect the you know trial, right? Uh, I mean, they like that. Yeah. So. Um, so I went in front of Judge Boyce, and he was um, pretty defensive. Um, he was, uh, it was interesting. He, he held up a, a piece of paper and said, you know, back on January of in January of 2020, here's a, an order that I, I filed, and it has findings in it. And I thought, okay, well, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to argue with you that you did it once right. I seem to recall that might have been the case, but what about the other 25 or more that are in the court record that you didn't bother with? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that is most fascinating to me is you asked about these um, meetings in chambers and they kept going back into chambers because John Pryor would say, I have a matter for the court that falls under the court's order. And at first I thought, what in the heck is he talking about? What, there's, what order? There's a secret gag order. There's a gag order in that case that keeps the parties and, and their lawyers from talking about the case. And it's sealed. Well, did the court do that on its own what? motion or did the prosecution? Don't know. Because everything's sealed. I can't tell. I can't tell who asked for it to be sealed. I have no idea. But have you ever heard of a sealed gag order before? No. Um, <laughs> and I can, well, think I, of, I can think of only, because normally lawyers are prohibited from going out to the press and sure. saying things that could affect the trial, so to speak. You know, if you, you got to be very careful about it. And I remember in one case that I had where the prosecution wanted a gag order and I was like, okay, because it was not a case that we were going to try in the press. Um, that never works well 
for the defense at all. No. So I was like, okay, judge, uh, I'll, I'm fine with it because I'm not going to be telling, talking to anybody. But for a court to say that, you know, there's a gag order and I would love to see what can and can't be discussed in open public. That's ultimately going to come out of trial. What are we going to do? Have the trial, you know, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, this is absurd. I've never seen anything like it. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. And normally, you know, we're talking about a death penalty case. And the judge made a comment, I think, in one of his orders. I think it was the motion regarding no cameras in the courtroom. He said, well, it's a death penalty case. And rarely do the prosecution and the defense agree on anything. But in this case, they all agree. No cameras in the courtroom. And, and my first thought is, exactly, why is everybody agreeing? It is a death penalty case. I do not get it. I do not understand it. Um, the case is going to get moved up to um, Ada County in Idaho, which is basically Boise, right. much larger population. I'm sure everybody's heard about this, but I've said this before and I'll say it again. I am certain they're going to be able to find 12 jurors, plus probably six or seven alternates who don't care about this or maybe have never heard any facts at all. So I just don't understand what is their big deal about it. I, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I mean, the, the issues about her mental health clearly fall within the exception to the statute and should be sealed. I get that. But, That's medical stuff. But sure. when, the, when the defense is raising it, saying you're going to hear about a mental defense, mental, you know, uh, mental health defense, at that yeah, point, it's you're kind of saying anyway. it's coming out anyway. Right. Right. So I don't think we really, I mean, we don't really know. Um, I do know that when they go back in chambers, they do take the court reporter. So the, those sessions in chambers are recorded and the judge can't keep them sealed forever. They're going to come out once the trial's done. So I, I don't know what the purpose is in, in closing everything. Um, I yeah, did I think it was interesting that the very last order that he put out having to do with the temporary stay for Lori um, was like textbook form of how you're supposed to write a, a, an order. And, um, you know, it outlined the facts uh, and, and any part of it that appeared sensitive was blacked out, redacted. And um, it, it let the press and the public know that her attorney had filed a, 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 um, affidavit uh about her competency yeah that uh that he the judge had called a, a quick meeting to order them to give that information to the prosecutor they had had a a, a, a hearing in which they agreed that she was going to be reevaluated and the case was going to be stayed until then it was a perfect order so, you know, my position to the court was, well, you obviously have conceded that I was right because you did it differently this time. You did exactly. it right now. All that exactly. other stuff you did wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm assuming the court's going to go back and amend their orders that he's previously done. It's just going to be a, 
Do you think you're going to get access to all that? He's going to say, you know what? I messed up and therefore it's all going to be released to you, Miss Hellas. Uh, or do you think he's going to go back and amend his uh, orders to make them compliant with the statute? Well, I think that's going to depend on how closely the media committee of the Idaho Supreme Court is looking at this. Okay. Um, after I had tried to file these motions several times and gotten nowhere, um, my research turned up the fact that there is a committee, the Supreme Court, Idaho Supreme Court has a committee, and their job is to mediate disagreements between the press and the and the bench. I don't know whether that committee still exists or not, because the entry on the website was old. But I wrote a letter to them. I, I actually I called to begin with and said, how do you get how do you get something? Yeah. How do you get something in front of this committee? Well, we don't know. And we'll put you into and they kept giving me the runaround. So finally, I just wrote the letter to the judge, who is the chair of the media committee. And um, so where did he used to sit on the bench before he went to the Supreme Court? <laughs> he held the position that uh, that Judge Boyce now holds. Ah, yeah. OK. Yeah. And, and, and has anybody responded from the committee at all? Or no, it's, it's one of those committees that they set up. It right. looks good on paper. Yeah. And once a year they meet so they can say that they've met. They've had a couple of minutes that they met, conferred and approved the orders from the last meeting. Right. And then they go have their little cocktail party yeah. and uh, right. sit around and say how great they uh, uh, how, how great they are. Correct. <laughs> That's or, or the meeting lasts long enough that the Supreme Court has to order lunch in for them so they get a free lunch. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I know it's just. Uh, so what's your gut feeling? I mean, I practice criminal defense as long as you have. I can usually read the tea leaves when it comes to how the judge is going to rule. What do you think the judge is going to do? I think you're right. I think he's going to unseal enough to sort of make a token effort at it. And then he's going to revise the rest of his orders to comply with the law and we'll get nothing. But at least... Um, at least people know that this is an issue. Yeah. And um, and at least I've asked for it. Yeah. So so I've I've been to Rexburg. I haven't been up to St. Mary's. Um, and I think I've described it as it's literally if you were to drop central casting from a movie set for like perfect middle America, you know, where people mm -hmm. don't lock their doors. Kids are out riding their bikes and all the store owners are waving at the kids. Hey, right. Johnny, that's the yeah. way it was. Right. And like I said, I only spent the day there, uh, but people were very nice. It wasn't anything weird or unusual. Clearly, um, there's a big Mormon temple up on the top of the hill. Uh, I think with the university or somehow associated there with the, uh, they have a BYU uh, branch, I guess there, if, if I'm, I think I'm correct on that. Yes. Uh, but the, I mean, it's kind of like Salt Lake city where you go there and you're like, the first thing that jumps out of you is my, how clean it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's no trash, no dirt, right. spotless, spotless, no homeless people. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> so, but I guess my question is, is people keep talking about the Mormon church 
in this. Um, what motivation, I mean, if, if you know, does the Mormon church have about any of this? Because my understanding was they usually don't like those fringe groups because, frankly, they make them all look bad. So why not just launch these two, throw them under the bus, figuratively, and let the chips fall where they may and say, you know, we're not associated with these people. I mean, this. Well, I think in a lot of ways the church has, but I think it's important. <clears throat> I think it's important to distinguish between the church writ large, the that monolithic political body with its headquarters in Salt Lake from LDS church culture. So you have people who have cradle to grave grown up within the structure of and the doctrine of the church. And the church itself tends to be quite patriarchal, quite secretive. They're an organization that has secret rituals and, and, and things that are considered too holy to talk about. And so you have people who have been raised in that culture, regardless of whether the church as an institution is saying, we don't want anything to do with these people. They are, they are pariahs. They, they, don't, they, they don't espouse our doctrine. The people who are involved in the case still live within that culture. And so it is a secretive, prote protective kind of culture. And I think that's where people make the mistake of saying, well, the church is involved. It really isn't. The church, in fact, has done everything they can to distance themselves from this case. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to someone who is a longtime church member and um, was told at one time one of the very important church elders came from Salt Lake and to, to talk to their congregation. And this person said, wow, I bet they've come to talk about the, this case and the impact that it's having on the church and on the community. And when the church elder got there, not a word was said about it. The church elder was there for a completely different reason and not a word was ever said about it. The church has actually never acknowledged um, anything to do with either one of these folks. And even sadder, three of the people who are dead in this case were faithful members of the church. And their name has never been uttered by the church. Mm. And that's sad. Yeah. Let me... <sighs> Yeah, I mean, it, it is. And I I mean, I know a lot of people are always like, oh, the church is manipulating this and manipulating that. But like you said, it's it's more of kind of an unspoken yeah. uh, type of type of situation here. So do we know or were you able to glean any more information as to the mental health issues that obviously have caused concern that caused Mr. Archibald to file a motion to say, judge, I'm concerned about competency. I want to reevaluate it. Were you able to glean anything from that, from the court proceedings, or is that all hidden once again in the chambers, uh, or even through conversations with people, you know, outside? 
you know, yes, it's all happening in chambers. So none of that was was public other than um, the documents. <clears throat> You've practiced law as long as I have, and you know what it's like to deal with clients and, and the issue of competency. Um, competency can be a moving target. And, right. you know, it can be, it, a, a small thing can trigger them. And sometimes it's something as simple as their meds quit working or they need to be adjusted or, you know, psychotropic medicine is kind of like voodoo. You know, it's a lot of trial and error. So it's hard to say why she suddenly decompensated. I suspect that John Pryor's motion, uh, his motion to sever the case probably, and and the suggestion that part of his defense was going to be Chad was an innocent bystander while Lori and Alex did it with uh, together, and um, he was set up. Um, you know, I suspect that that suggestion probably didn't play very well with her. Um, remember, uh, everything we know is that she still thinks they are the goddess and the chosen one, and they are they they are exalted beings, and they are going straight to the celestial kingdom once their important work down here is done. And um, LDS uh, doctrine is very heavy onto into families continuing to be sealed to one another once they're in heaven. So marriages go on in heaven. And so her, her, her it, it wasn't a surprise to see her show up in court um, two hearings ago with a hair tie on in, in place of a wedding ring. Um, as far as she's concerned, she is still absolutely all in and all in on Chad. And um, so I, I can't imagine that, that that went down too well when um, when her attorney went over those motions with her and it's very clear their defense is going to be some other dude did it, you know, yeah. the Saudi defense. <laughs> I've, you know, I, I got somebody who's like, I, I don't like the way you say you called it, but I called it. There was, I mean, you, sure. you knew, I mean, we talked about this uh, long ago. I mean, there's not a whole lot of defense out there for Chad no. other than it wasn't me. I didn't know. Right. Sure, this lady, she was nice. Um, she kind of, you know, rocked my world. Uh, but next thing you know, man, everybody keeps dying around her. I'm kind of playing it cool. <laughs> Had no idea what's going on. Maybe he knows something afterwards, which, you know, accessory is a lot different than, you know, being complicit in it. And conspiracy, sure. And then the next thing you know, my wife's getting shot at and then ultimately she dies. Uh, and then Alex dies. I mean, all these uh, coincidences, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it just keeps coming. But so uh, I've had—I don't know about your listeners, but I've had a lot of people ask me, "Why aren't they? Why aren't they going to divorce? Who's gonna? Who's going to file for divorce?" Now, Idaho is interesting because the marital privilege. Um, does not apply if it involves the injury or death of one of the partner's children. Yeah. 
but it does apply when it has to do with, with Tammy's death. So it will apply in, in if there was any conspiracy um, going on in regards to Tammy's death. So I don't think they're in a, anybody's in a really big hurry to get divorced. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. That's, that's interesting. And I don't, I don't think Mr. Pryor put that in any of his motions, something to the, I don't think, I don't recall anybody asserting any privileges at that point. Not um, yet. Not yet. But yeah. once again, these are all the types of things that if we were able to actually see the motions, right. you and I, somebody kind of read between the lines, you can figure out what, I mean, it's not like we have any special knowledge, I guess, so to speak, but just a little more experience. And you can say, this is what I think is going to take place. Um, just from the motions that we have or orders that we have uh, been given, you know, it's just like, oh my gosh, I, I knew something was going on. I knew it. And I just don't get it. I've never seen anything like it before. Yeah. Um, and frankly, yeah. I think I think somebody, you know, prior, Mr. Pryor should be filing motions saying, I want to renew, re revisit this uh, protection order, judge, because it's violating my client's right to a fair trial and things done in secrecy and not in a public courtroom. I mean, my experience is, I mean, I've seen it occasionally like in juvenile cases where they kick everybody out of the courtroom. But for the most part, I don't care what's going on. You could be talking about the most heinous crime, the most embarrassing set of facts in the world. And I don't care if you're talking in a divorce court or whatever. Right. Anybody could diddy bop into that courtroom, have a seat and sit there and listen to, you know, the people's most private and most intimate things that are at issue. And nobody can say, uh, would you please leave? That would be a violation. That would be a violation of um, the Sixth Amendment and the client's right. Uh, right to do that. And I just don't understand why people aren't. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, outraged. outraged. Yeah, I don't know. So to speak, and, and, and not making objections to it. Um, you, you know, Scott, in my experience, the only time that I, that, that documents or, or court proceedings were sealed was in the case where you had a child witness, say, in a sex abuse case and you wanted to protect the child witness or you wanted to protect the identity of a child witness. Those are the only circumstances that I can recall in my career having I, documents I, sealed. Yeah, it may be in a juvenile matter, but you know, even if you do a trial where the child is a victim, they got to come to court. Um, you know, I still get to sit on, they still get to sit on the stand and cross-examine yeah. them. You know, maybe now they get to have the, emotional support dog underneath the, the stand, uh, for them, but they still got to, you know, get cross-examined. And so I just don't get what the secrecy is here. I mean, and if somebody on one side of the defense would start objecting to it, I just don't understand. I mean, I would think if Mr. Archibald is going to run a mental health defense, start planting that seed that she is not competent. She cannot form the mental, the requisite mental intent 
i.e. knowingly do something, right? You knew what you were doing. You were aware of your consequences. You know, if you don't appreciate and understand the consequences, not like, oh, I didn't think I was going to get in that much trouble, but you really think that you're this princess goddess, right? You think you'd start planning that out there um, to, to somebody, maybe get some sympathetic juror. Oh, she's got a mental health issue. Look what happened down there in the Nicholas Cruz case, right? Mm-hmm. One juror. Oh, I just think he's got some mental health issues. Sorry about that, everybody. You know, and whether you're, whatever your you know position is on the death penalty, you just think, you know, you can't go out there and do anything unethical, but you can start through the filings, get that information out to help your defense. Sure. You would think John Pryor, would, Mr. Pryor would start um, saying, hey, Mike, I didn't do it. Yeah. Lori validated it. We know from the motion. And it was mm-hmm. interesting. You would think that that motion for severance, I mean, throws Lori Vallow under the bus, mm-hmm. gives his defense. Mm-hmm. Why is that one not sealed to the extent that because it's going to affect uh, somebody's right to a fair trial? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. His rulings seem arbitrary and capricious, but you can't really definitively say that because we don't know what's in that gag order that, right. that somebody agreed to or was ordered to come. I mean, right. it's just, it's, I don't know. I don't know where, when the gag order was entered. I don't know who on whose motion I, I there's no way to know. And yeah. it's, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's getting in the way of, of them being able to prosecute the case. I, I think it's getting in the way of them being a, the defense attorneys being able to, to bring a defense, but we'll see yet another, yet another issue for appeals. I suppose. Well, and that's my thing is like, you know, you're a prosecutor. I was a prosecutor a long, long, long time ago for a very, very short time in the military. Me too. <laughs> but your job as a prosecutor is to protect the record not get right. everything that you want. Right. I mean, I've had good prosecutors say, judge, you can't do that. No matter how much I would like you to do that, judge, right. you can't do that. Yeah. And um, yeah. that's what I'm sort of surprised as to why are the prosecutors going along with this? Because, um, you know, we've both done trials in small towns and every time I do a trial in a small town, I get hometown like you would not believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't like, you know, those big city attorneys coming. Oh, I know. Town and, <laughs> and the thing is, I mean, all the rules apply the same way. Right. Um, <laughs> I had a case once where I, I'm, I'm my expert witness is on the stand and I'm just, you know, hammering away. And the D the DA gets up and says, uh, your honor, I'm going to object. Uh, this is not within uh, the expert's report, my expert's report is like, you know, like seven, eight pages, but he referenced all the exhibits, you know, in, it, in a, an appendix. And the prosecutor got up and said in open court, your honor, I only read the seven pages because that's what was in the report. And I literally, <laughs> I, I literally, I was so in shock. I said, your honor, if the prosecution had sent me something and I only read seven pages of it. I would be contacting my malpractice carrier right now, right? <laughs> Needs to say he didn't like that uh, right. because it was in front of a jury. But I was like, "Are you kidding me?" But it was mm-hmm. the, and the judge was like, "Oh, well, now, Mister Raj, we don't need to start, 
you know, slinging words there. We can just, you know, let's resolve this amicably because everything is a go along, get along attitude. And it like we're in litigation. It doesn't have to go along, get along. It's called battle. Like there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And both sides have to do everything within the rules to win. And I just don't get it. Well, it's definitely a small town. It's definitely a culture where they look out for one another. It's definitely, um, it, it definitely goes well beyond the case. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I think, uh, I think we're really at the point of asking the question, can these people get a fair trial with this prosecutor and this judge? Let me ask you. This. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you this. I mean, I know that the judge, Judge Boyce is assigned to that particular county. I'm assuming he rides the circuit, right? He's got a couple of St. Mary's and he's in right. Rexburg and he's got his little docket and he travels around. Um, are there how many other judges sit on the district court bench down there that, you know, frankly, have more experience, if you know, that could be like, oh, you know, we you're, you're so important to Judge Boyce. We're going to get you, uh, you know, we're going to get you uh, something else, you know, work on. You know, I don't know that. I don't know how many judges there are in that judicial district. Okay. I know that there's one more because he's the administrative judge. Okay. But um, I don't know how many are okay. riding the, the, I think that district has three or four counties. So yeah. So those um, judges spend more time on the road. Yeah. You know, make going back and forth to, to all the jurisdictions and they got set days and whatever, but you know, most death penalty judges that becomes their full-time job. Um, I've seen when we had the, the uh, case down there in Aurora for the, the Aurora theater shooter case, the Batman one. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Judge Samore, who's now on the Colorado Supreme Court, was uh, it was like his full time job. I mean, it was like this right. is this is what we're going to do because the motions just kept coming. The yeah, and it was all kinds of motions practice that I've seen little to nothing of in this particular case. I mean, I know no. it's Archibald's motion saying, "Hey, you, it's unconstitutional to not let people who object to the death penalty sit on the jury panel." But right. that's going to be, you know, denied. But that's kind of the motions practice that the death penalty stuff gets into. Right. Right. And we haven't seen any of that yet. I haven't seen a single thing. So. Mm-mm. So, yeah, I it's I don't I I don't really know um, what it is about this case that has sort of been a magnet for all of this stuff that's just not quite right. You know, I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. And I'm just surprised. And I, I know the media said, don't, don't um, take the video away. And the judge said the media did nothing wrong. Right. Uh, they were, they were, the media was following all the rules, but since now both sides don't want it, then I'm just not going to do it. You know, I really wish, you know, those newspapers and, and what have you pushed much earlier on. Uh, but 
I guess that's just water under the bridge at this point because I couldn't believe that the whole judge's order is has no appellate review whatsoever. Yeah, not in Idaho. You know, I think it's interesting, though. Um, he did mention in this hearing, talking about the continuance, that he's been coordinating and, and had a lot of conversation with Ada County, which is the court in Boise. Um, he said before he granted the continuance motion, he wanted to talk to the folks in Boise and find out what the possibility was of setting the, the trial out and what what the possibility is of a of a new date. So, but I, I think what was interesting is I don't think that he really understands the import of uh, of what's coming <laughs> in Ada County when the trial starts. I, I mean, I, I don't think he really has wrapped his head around how many people are going to be there and how much media is going to be there. The, the other thing is, and I've talked to several of the family members, there are family members that are feeling that they're, that this really disenfranchises them because they can't take three months off from work and go to the trial. So not being able to see it streamed is a hardship for the victim's families. And um, some of uh, the family members who are uh, relatives of Kay and Larry Woodcox are older and not in great health and traveling to Boise for three months is just not in the cards. So um, I, I'm hoping that the families will express to Judge Boyce their continued concern about access. And I'm hoping that once Judge Boyce has the opportunity to talk to Ada County, he's going to realize what a problem no cameras in the courtroom could cause. I mean, one of my questions is in the in a lot of the bigger cases we've seen, Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, those big cases. Um, what happens is there's always too much press to get into the courtroom. And so they set up an overflow room for, for the press. Yeah. That's going to have to have a closed circuit feed. And if they put a closed circuit feed in there, what's to stop them from somebody from just live streaming that. So. Well, yeah. And if you're going to stream it for the extra courtroom, uh, why not right. just let the world see it? Right. I, I, like I said, I just, this judge is not, I mean, there's some judges that write really well and they write great orders and you completely understand what they did, why they, they did it under the law. But this judge and not, I'm not criticizing, you know, um, but it just, he, he's struggling to convince me that he's making the right decisions because of one, the secrecy and two, uh, his orders are just not that well written in my humble opinion uh to explain I think he's why just, this is necessary i think he's just completely out of his depth yeah um yeah. i mean if he's doing county court or municipal case municipal court cases and i looked at his background a while ago i mean i think he kind of did a hodgepodge kind of a general practice before he hit the bench to suddenly be thrown into a death penalty case uh kind of as your first case Normally, you would think somebody up at the Supreme Court would say, hey, we got some 
powers here. Why don't we move some people around and put an experienced judge on this case? Uh, not to say he's not qualified, but you know, maybe you know, maybe the next time around. You know, I, I just don't get it. But well, you we'll know, see. one one thing about Idaho law is that if a judge orders a change of venue, the judge can opt to stay with the case or can say, I'd rather have a, a judge from the receiving jurisdiction take over the case. Yeah. And a lot of people were very hopeful that he was going to suck it up and not have his, and not let his ego get in the way and actually defer the case to somebody with more experience. But that didn't. Yeah. Well, he's, I've said it before and I'll say it again. <laughs> he's turning into the, Judge Ito of Rexburg uh, County. I mean, and don't get me wrong, I get it's a death penalty case. It's going to take a couple of years from start to finish. I just feel like we haven't really, we're not, we haven't got anywhere. Yeah, we're not even, we're just still in the starting blocks. Yeah. So, so the judge also did not stay the case as it relates to Chad Daybell. Right. Um, as the prosecution had requested. And they said, well, judge, they're joined. You've already joined them. You've got mental health issues. Just stay the case. No harm, no foul. I think the judge made the right decision on that because you don't know how long it's going to be for Lori Vallow to become competent again. It could, you know, she starts taking her meds again and everything's great. Uh, well, what happens if she stops taking them because she doesn't like what she hears in court or whatever, or she starts feeling better so she stops taking the medication, not realizing the reason she feels better is because she's on the medication. So you get in this whole little cycle. The case has got to move forward. So I think the judge made the right decision on that, but he needs to move this thing along. Well, I think he made the right decision on it too. But frankly, I don't think that there was any legal um, justification for the, the state asking to stay Chad's case. I, I don't think he had the power to do it. Yeah. So, and the only, I was trying to think of a case where, I mean, you have co-defendant, let's say one co-defendant is, you know, in custody, the other guy skips bond, you know, the case will go on. Um, I've seen a multi co-defendant cases in a federal case that there's some argument that it really doesn't begin until the last co-conspirator comes in and appears before the court. But they're not, you know, if that guy is on the lamb for 10 years. They're not going to say, oh, we're not going to try you for 10 years. It's just not going to happen. Right. So once again, going back to the prosecutor has a job of protecting the record. I do not understand why they're making these requests like it's no big deal. And when you read their briefs, maybe there's just not that much Idaho law, but they cite to um, Ninth Circuit case law. On most of these issues, which I just, I don't get, you know, as well as I do, that's persuasive authority. And usually right. judges don't look at it that persuasively at all. No. So, you know, uh, if the judge was in the ninth, you know, the ninth circuit on the U S district court, he'd say, oh, I got to listen to the ninth circuit. This is what they tell me. I got to follow that precedent and that of the Supreme court. But they'd be like, I don't yeah. care if you're studying Idaho or, uh, the Fifth Circuit. Nobody cares. Um, right. I, I, it's just a lot of it just doesn't make sense to me. Well, a lot of it doesn't necessarily make sense to me either. Um, I I do think that 
um, on that particular issue of staying the case there. I don't think there was a lot of case law, which is why they were forced to dig into the Ninth Circuit, which is always a good indication that probably the judge doesn't have any authority to do it anyway. So, um, you know, I mean, never come up. I mean, let's John, John Pryor scored a couple. Um, I, I think the thing that was interesting was that the, the prosecutors only filed that motion to stay the case um, the day before that hearing. And John Pryor hadn't had any opportunity to, to respond to it. And, um, and he, he, he was not happy about that. That was when the issue of let's have some motion deadlines came up for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the judge was right on that. I, and, and I, I question, you know, the prosecution is so intent on, on trying this case, trying them together. Um, but I'm not entirely sure they get there. Uh, yeah. I think that John Pryor's arguments in his motion were pretty persuasive. And then we have the unknown quantity of how long Lori is going to be incompetent again. Yeah. And I don't think they can wait on that. I don't think they can either. Even if she's restored to competency, who's to say the morning of trial, she could be judge. I have a good faith basis that I need to file a motion to address her competency. I mean, (laughs) I I think they just need to get used to the reality that they're going to do this once and it's probably going to be with Chad Daybell and they may have to do it again twice for Lori Vallow. And that's just the way it is. Just face the reality, quit dealing with it. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw my video, but everything they always yeah. say is it's really expensive. Yeah. And judge, if you're going to grant that severance, can you do it in October so that we can spread this out over two fiscal years? Yeah, really? Who says that? Who says that in a motion? Judge is real expensive. Right. Justice is expensive. Go back to your county commissioners, get the money. They have the money. They'll find the money. Go try this case. Move it on. It just seems like this maybe, I don't want to throw stones, but it seems like they're scared to go try the case. I don't get it. I think that's possible. And and yet, um, if you recall, Early on in the case, um, Lindsey Blake, who is the Fremont County prosecutor, had not yet been elected. And there was a prior uh, elected DA. She decided not to run again because she had some health issues and had supported her deputy running. Then Lindsey Blake came back. She was a hometown girl, grew up in in St. Anthony. And so she ran and won, but her predecessor was originally in charge of the investigation of Tammy Daybell's death. At the time, the children's bodies had not been found yet. So that was not a Fremont County case, but Tammy Daybell's death was a Fremont County case because it happened at Chad Daybell's home, which is about a hundred yards over the, the border or the, sure. the boundary, State, the County line. Yeah. Right. So that prosecutor said from, excuse me, from the beginning, 
I do not have the resources to deal with this very complex case. And she turned it over to the state AG, so it's the state attorney general. And the state attorney general had the case until Lindsay Blake was elected. And then she asked the AG for the case back. Now, see, I don't know why in two tiny little rural jurisdictions, they didn't all agree. These cases have got to go to the state AG. They have the resources. They have the money. They have the experienced attorneys to, to yeah. take care and prosecute this case. Suddenly you get the pot of money that the attorney general gets. Right. And we have something similar where rural communities, they can ask the attorney general for help on bigger cases. I've seen it. I've had cases where that's uh, taken place. Usually it was smaller communities, mm-hmm. but it was a big case and they frankly just don't have the resources to do it and they pick up the phone and 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 nobody looked negatively upon anybody it was just like you know we're equals here you guys you know you guys do this part of the case but it was a funding thing and they they uh they did it like i said it wasn't a concession like oh we're just a bunch of country hayseeds and we can't get this correct at all no it's not the case at all some of the finest attorneys i've ever seen have been you know, rural uh, attorneys out there. And uh, like I said, I just don't understand what the big, like, why did she want it back? I mean, let the AG's office handle this. They're going to, they're going to rue the day that they, (laughs) that they said, Oh, we're going to keep this and prosecute it. Yeah. I don't really know why she wanted it back. I, I mean, I know that Rob Wood was very, is very invested in the case. I know that he's, um, that he's very invested in finding justice. He's he's gotten to know the Woodcocks very well. And um, I, I think he's, you know, like most prosecutors, um, made some commitments that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to find these people and prosecute them. Um, I, I don't know whether that has anything to do with his continued decision, but, I mean, it certainly is a bit of hubris to say, my little bitty town who has zero budget uh, for this uh, is, is going to hold on to this case when somebody else could probably do the job better. Yeah. You know, it goes back to that rule. There's two types of people in the world. Those that are humble and those that are about to be. <laughs> and it's, and it's, true. it's never been wrong. It's part of my 12 undeniable truths. That's right. Life from a criminal defense attorney. Uh, and that That's one exactly. has never, ever, ever been wrong. And I get it, they, you know, the emotion, the passion of it. But if your job is to do justice, sometimes you got to say, I need to send you off to somebody that, frankly, has done this before, you know? Right. Um, our attorney general used to, before we uh, got rid of the death penalty here, they used to have what they referred to as the death squad. Mm-hmm. Where that was their job to go prosecute death penalty cases. And, you know, that was their job. Yeah. They had like five cases going on at any given time. And that right. was it. Right. So, uh, so anyway. I don't know. So what's next? You got a channel. You're coming on Friday. You're going to be, you're, you're going to be on once again, uh, plug your channel so that everybody that's uh, watching is already in the, in the um, comments below, I guess. Or what's, what's what I'm looking for? Yeah. Frank, the links below. Frank's already put it there that. Um, Perfect. Uh, it is it. called children of darkness and light. That's the name of my book. And what's next is to keep, researching, keep attending hearings, keep pushing to get files unsealed. 
and uh, hopefully write the damn book if we ever get to trial. <laughs> I know, because I'm looking for the book, you know, the big, uh, what do they have when they books come out, right? A big book Oh, yeah, big book launch, yeah. And then, the, you know, you'll be able to spend all those royalty checks and maybe it'll be good. It'll be really good. I hope so. so, yeah. All right, well, we hit that hour mark and um, it's time to go. But I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. And um, I mean- you know, I'm the person I email you or call you and say, Hey, can you talk? Yeah. Uh, well, what was exactly what's going on? Cause I know you're going to be there. So it's, uh, yeah. it's, 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 you're a great source of information. And like I said, you're my hero yeah. telling the judge, you Thank can't you. do that. Cause you know, hey. that's what lawyers do. Right. <laughs> right. And I love it. Judge, you can't do that. I no disrespect, <laughs> but you can't do that. Judge right. and get yourself out of this pickle. So right, uh, it's good. So anyway, you're, you're my hero. Keep up the good work. Thanks. And, Thanks so uh, much for having me on. Yeah, well, I'll try to tune in on Friday night. You know, I have a very, very busy schedule. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> um, the other night it was Sunday, and I, I was like, "Is it only 7:30? Why am I ready for bed?" Thank you. <laughs> I'm tired. So, anyway, all right, Harry Hellas, thank you for joining us. Um, I'll be in touch with you throughout the week, and uh, everybody, go check out our show Friday night. What time is it? Go out. It, it goes out at 6 Pacific. That's 7 Mountain. I think I may have misspoken okay. earlier. 6, six Pacific. Pacific. All right. Yeah. Everybody go check, go check it out. All right. Thanks, Lori. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, everyone. Um, that was our live for this evening. If you have not become a Patreon member, now would be a good time to do that because we're going to roll into our Patreon show uh, in just a couple of minutes. I have to make a phone call because the practice of law never rests and um, got to call somebody back. So I'll do that. And as soon as I get done with that call, we'll go do our Patreon show. So please join us. Thanks for watching. Hope you have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.